Welcome to another episode of Comedy Wham Presents with me, your host, Valerie, and sometime Kitty co-hosts, Miss Purrington and Mookie. ComedyWham.com is your place to go for features about all Austin comedy. In addition to podcasts, Comedy Wham brings you articles, album reviews, our advice column, Rochelle Takes on Comedy, our festivals page listing upcoming festivals across the country and the world, and our 2023 FPIA contest page. We're best known for our events page for live comedy shows in Austin, Houston, and DFW, where 100% of the entries you see come from comics and producers. If you want your show featured on the calendar, click the Submit a Show button from the top of the homepage or events page to complete the short survey. It's free and easy. Tag us on your Instagram stories and we'll share your show promo to our Instagram followers. Want to support these resources we provide? You can donate to Comedy Wham on PayPal, Venmo, or even Patreon. Click the Support CW icon on the top right on our homepage to see the ways you can help us. Now back to our podcast. Launched in 2016, the podcast project brings you funny people and their stories. As a fan, I like to delve into a comic's background and motivations and will usually take a detour along the way. Consider the interview a way for you to get to know the folks that make the Austin comedy scene one of the best in the country. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us. We need some fresh reviews, so please do review us. All right, today we are talking to your go-to realtor at Drag Realty. They are also the host of Drag Brunch, an incredible show that mixes comedy with drag, often at Cap City, but has been making the rounds of other venues around downtown Austin. And they competed in this year's 2023 Cap City Comedy Club Funniest Person in Austin contest. And now Comedy Wham presents our guest, Ruby Diculous. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for uh, joining me. I've I've been stressed out as you could probably tell about the okay how do I how do I address this person are they going to come in their their full regalia and am I going to be able to like you know have the straight shooter interview and you were very very um, I guess honest in saying I- I'm the same person on stage as I am off stage yeah. so this is going to be yeah like podcasts just... are great for drag <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually, you know, I I, used, I, I worked in radio. Uh, I studied radio, television, and film. Ah. Uh, worked at CBS News. And so I was doing a podcast here in Austin um, uh, with another comic back in 2009, 2000, 2011. Okay. And I used to have people come up and tell me um, at the gay bar, I specifically remember walking in and this one guy walked up and he was drunk and he was like, drag queens don't do podcasts and i was like okay <laughs> and now fast forward every drag queen has a yeah. podcast oh my gosh <laughs> so that's crazy funny. uh okay so uh let me let me take care of my my icebreaker question sure. first and then we're we're gonna dig in uh more uh w- tell me one word to describe your past oh uh troubled oh no no <laughs> Uh, yeah, just, I don't, that, there's never one word to describe the past of a drag queen. <laughs> um, yeah, I would, I would, I definitely had a lot of highs and lows mm. in my past. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Oh, okay. Well, Selena. Yeah, I, it, it <laughs> is. I go too. It is. I, well, we, my dad, I, I do this joke and it's true. My, I always say, you know, my father's like a gay man. He's an alcoholic that moves to a new city every three years. 
Um, and it's true. So every three years we moved from oh. outside Dallas to Corpus Christi. We moved back and forth, back and forth. And um, so it was never like I say Corpus Christi. That's I'd say 60% of my yeah. life was spent there. The other half was on a farm outside of Dallas. Huh. Wow. But only those two destinations for... for yeah, there was Louisiana. I mean, the border of Louisiana, like Orange, Texas. So uh. we have... Never outside of Texas, but everywhere inside Texas yeah. I've lived. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Okay. And when you were growing up, was comedy part of uh, of your life, either just in the family or, or watching or whatever? Yeah. Um, my mom, my, both my parents are very funny. Um, my dad's a, a joke teller. He's just a really the life of the party. Uh-huh. And my mom's a very funny, witty um person and so my mom had i specifically remember listening to like george carlin albums mm-hmm. like she had all the vinyls of george carlin wow. and cheech and chong and lily tomlin and so that's what i listened to growing up was stand-up comedy we watched stand-up comedy um we never actually went to a lot i realized that uh, in another interview <laughs> we've never been to a live comedy show oh wow as a kid uh-huh. um but Huge fan of stand-up. Yeah. So my whole life was very funny around comedy. and. Um, what yeah. was your... Uh, I, I know you, 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 you're conveying that you, you liked listening to, to this, the comedy, but what was your relationship to it? Like, is it just something, oh, it's just whatever's on in the airwaves in the house, or, man, this is really cool, I wish I could do that, or just, it's just it was just a presence? Yeah, it was just, yeah, a presence, like... I think comedy, my whole family, my grandmother, everybody was just uh, very funny, outrageous people. Yeah. And so I don't think I ever looked at stand-up as something I wanted to do at that age. Yeah. I don't think I realized that until I got out of radio and I was on mm. stage a lot. So around you know mid-20s when I left radio, entertainment radio, I was on stage a lot. And people were like, you should do stand-up. Mm. And I was working with a lot of comics back then. Um, so it kind of just naturally happened. And then yeah. I was like, why didn't I think of this huh. my whole life? Like, I definitely was more interested in, like, drag and, like, female impersonation. Uh-huh. And um, that little gay boy in me was, like, entertaining in the living room to an empty room. Um, it was not doing stand-up. It was, like, high kicks and jumps and, like, oh. big razzle-dazzle shows that I would put on. Yeah. Um, and then that kind of... Um, so, yeah, comedy was not like, as a child, I wanted to be a sure, comic. It kind sure. of happened. All right, so I, I want to talk about what you just said about, you know, the, the young gay boy doing the high kicks. Yeah. You know, I'm visualizing this. In, in, uh, so uh, how comfortable were you with that in, in the outside world? Because, you know, we're from Texas, and Texas isn't always very friendly to people that don't fit the standard white cis, yeah. you know, whatever. How how was your growing up for, you know, expressing yourself the way you wanted to express yourself? So I mean, you know, I talk a little bit about that and in my act, and I've I'm kind of elaborating on it. You know, growing up during the AIDS crisis wasn't easy for anybody. Yeah. Uh, but being a little feminine boy um, in a family that I, I I I don't think we had the terminology for it, but they weren't accepting my father, you know, he was very tough man's man, you know, my mom, she definitely didn't 
like effeminate men. Like I could just tell mm-hmm. that there was a difference. Um, and then come to find out, like, you know, my grandfather was transgendered or we would say he would identify as he struggled with his gender his whole life. He was my step grandfather. Um, and you know, just uh, my mother having a stepfather that cross dressed secretly, mm-hmm. there was a lot of shame yeah. that was talked about. So I, I definitely remember now my mother will kill me, but I used to go out and, um, like I had this PVC pipe on the farm and I'd pretend it was a baton and I'd throw it up and catch it and hike and I'd make her come watch me. And I remember specifically one time she very stoically watched me and said, you love to high kick and swish your hips around. You'll make a good drag queen one day. No way. And there was just, growing up, there was this dark cloud of cross-dressing. That was probably the worst thing you could do because that's what her stepfather did. She didn't understand it. It wasn't something we talked about Mm -hmm. um, in the 80s and 90s. So the first time I even, like, played with my mom's clothes or my grandmother, my grandmother was like a drag queen. And my drag persona is based off my grandmother. Aww. And so... You know, the first time I ever did that, I it, there was an immediate, like, pack your stuff, we're leaving. And then in the car, she kind of told us that someone in our family did that. They don't approve of it. And wow. so from that moment on, there was, I mean, even I can remember not being able to express myself in elementary school in those times. I, I would put together entire dance routines with my brother and, like, make him move all the furniture into the living room and set all this up. And it's yeah. like, we knew when our parents weren't home, like, latchkey, right? We had time to ourselves. And then uh, I would always remember, like, hearing the garage door open and, like, scrambling to hide everything and, like, butch it back up, you know? And, like, and that was in elementary. So, I mean, my whole life there was definitely a cloud of shame attached to not just being gay, but um, um, cross-dressing specifically was something that, I don't know, it's just born in you. Like, if you're a little gay boy and you love everything girly, it's just a natural um, thing and that binary back then it was brutal so it took it took me until my 30s really to be comfortable in drag wow that's a long time because uh so when would that have been like the last 2010s so i launched ruby as like a as a character person persona in 2011 2012 at austin pride i was hosting austin pride and um, I went backstage, got in drag in the middle of the show I produced and came out. And that was kind of the introduction of Ruby. Huh. So Austin Pride 2012. Yeah. It took till then. Gosh. Yeah. It's so. a long time to fight with Yeah. With that, like, suppression. Yeah. So I was doing stand-up long before I did drag, like, mm. professionally. So huh. it, was e- it was actually easier for me to do stand-up out of drag. Um, it took a long time to overcome that shame. Yeah. Yeah. And then I kind of like had to get used to doing stage work in drag. And I would say I'm still, uh, there's still shame attached. Like mm-hmm. there's still deep seated shame. So it's, I don't think that, I don't, it goes away. I'm comfortable with who I am, um, but that it's always there. You know? I mean, your childhood just forms the foundation of a lot of your personality and the, and the thoughts that you have. So it's, it's not shocking. I'm sorry that that is the way that, that your life was for, you know, not letting you express who, who you are, but happy that you're now expressing who you are. Yeah. Yeah. It came with years of addiction and problems and issues yeah. to 
you know, finally figure out what was the root of all that. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like performance and, and going to college for, for RTF, I mean, that's, and, and even performing in, in your living room, that's always been who, yeah. who you are. Did yeah. you perform, like, in traditional ways, like theater, drama, yeah. whatever, in high school and oh, yeah. college? Yeah, I, I grew up in small enough towns where it's like it wasn't too gay to play football and be in theater. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was like you wanted to be in both yeah. and it was okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was in theater. I was in UIL. Uh, I won all-star cast and all-star one year. Wow, congratulations. Um, thank you. And so theater was definitely acting was what I wanted to do. Yeah. I knew that I just wanted to be on TV. That was my dream. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be on TV. Um and, uh, you know, there was a bit of that constant, I, th I think my parents tried to protect me. I think, you know, I remember specifically them saying, like, you dream really big. Mm -hmm. And we're really worried that if you don't achieve those dreams, that you would be, like, really depressed. Huh. There wasn't, like, you should just go do it, yeah. right? Like, now I think we wouldn't tell children that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, you know, it, my, my mother and my grandmother had a, a funny way of kind of just, they understood the principle of fear and rearing children. Mm. And so I think it was like what they didn't achieve, they couldn't see, um, someone else achieving. So, I mean, I was specifically told like lots of people moved to LA to be actors and mm. comedians and they all end up selling their ass to old dirty men on the street. Oh, and I was like, man, if you'd have told me that... <laughs> If that was the, the downside, <laughs> I would have struck while the iron was hot. Yeah. Not at 42. Um, but yeah, so, and I don't, I've had those conversations with my, my family now. My dad's super supportive. My mother's super supportive. She's been to my shows. I was at Harbor Playhouse um, with Ada Vox. We did a show there. Um, and I did Corpus Christi Pride. My whole family came. And, and like I said, I, growing up with a grandfather, presumably trans, and then now my aunt and my uncle have come out, huh. you know, in the last couple of years. And so I, you have to realize the projection you were receiving. A lot yeah. of times it's because people in your family are gay. And I mean, there's no, I don't have like deep-seated animosity for my family. Um, but if there was encouragement to be an entertainer, it was not there. Yeah. It was yeah. not what I was like me going to college for. It was against their wishes. Mm. Um, and then when I, because of my alcoholism and dropping out of college, um, I moved home one year and then within a week I wrecked my car drunk <gasps> and my mother was like, you're not going to lay around the pool. You're not going to just hang out here. You just dropped out of college. You just moved home with me. Um, you have a week to find a job and you're out on your own. And then I direct my car and she's like, you're not going to, you're either out or you're going to come to work with me. So I had to start working with my mother in healthcare and I learned a lot. It provided me with a stable career. And then I went to school for radiology and things like that. And I stayed in healthcare for many years. Um, I think looking back now, it, it's like I never believed in myself was mm -hmm. the biggest problem, right? Because it was told to me that way. And so then... I stayed in a career in quiet desperation when, in fact, there was a, a point in my 20s where I said, you could use your free time to follow your dreams. 
you know, you could use that yeah. to, and so then I started working locally and trying to get into radio. And, and so it, it did happen later. Um, but it was always the dream from a young age on that that's what I wanted to do. But what got in the way was alcoholism. Yeah. Like that really prevented me from pursuing dreams. It kept me pretty dormant, slave to the bailing myself out of the troubles that I brought, mm. you know, DWIs. And I got ran over by a drunk driver eight days after I moved to Austin. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I still have a metal rod in my leg from that. So there was just like. All of the hopes and wishes and dreams and ambitions were always there. Yeah. I just couldn't. I, I couldn't get traction. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I'm intrigued about is is you going into radio. Radio is not an easy business to no. break into. I have a friend who's been in radio. She's somehow managed to be in radio her entire career. I don't know how she does it. She, I mean, she's had changes, obviously, but. Uh, how uh, how did that happen for you? Was that kind of, this is a terrible way to phrase it, given your honesty about alcoholism, but was that your gateway drug to realizing that performance, there was a way for you to get there? Yeah, I think I... I, I'm aware, like, I have a radio voice, like an old school... You really do, yeah. I have an old school radio voice. Um, and so... I don't think I realized the power of it at that age. Mm -hmm. Like I had gone through puberty and like, I really didn't like it. I didn't, I mean, I definitely was more on the feminine side until I went through puberty. And then like, I went from five foot one to six, two. And you know, I, I learned how to act straight. I learned how to use my voice, um, to protect myself. Mm -hmm. I learned how people respond to it. And and the first time I realized like it could lead into an entertainment career or that it was um, a benefit was I was touring a CBS station in Corpus Christi, and it was something I was going to school for. And the owner, Van Kennedy, um, who's known for giving Walter Cronkite his first huh. job when wow. he dropped out of UT in Austin, um, he walked out and he said, whose voice is that? And he called me in and he made me sit down in front of a, a tape recorder and he had me read the news and then he offered me a job. Oh my gosh. So I got to learn journalism while studying broadcast journalism from Van Kennedy. Well, he was in his nineties at the time and, um, he still owned that TV station at the time, um, before he, when I left, they had sold, mm -hmm. but I got to meet Walter Cronkite twice. That's cool. Yeah. So <laughs> like super cool. As a, at the time, aspiring journalist, it was the coolest yeah. thing ever, right? Um, and I got to learn from all these old timers that had never left that TV station. Like the news newscaster would fall asleep in the middle of the news. <laughs> I mean, watching that show was like looking at Congress now. Like they're just asleep <laughs> at the wheel. And that local CBS affiliate was like those Walter uh, Furley, I believe was his name, uh, had been the news noon, noon newscaster for 40 years. Wow. And so when I left there, it was the end of an era. I wanted, I hated news. I hated journalism. And I was warned about ad-driven journalism then by everybody in that station. They were like, it's dying. It's like this law had passed in the 80s. They were warning that it's going to entertainment-style news. It's not real journalism. Yeah. And I specifically remember I was doing the morning news on the radio. I was doing weekends uh, reporting in the field. And... Um, to me, that was like a dream come true, right? You know, 
and I, that I do remember being warned about ad-driven journalism. And then after we'd sold to Eagle Creek Communications, I was pulled from a story that I wrote to go cover the opening of a Verizon wireless store. And when I asked the new news director about it, uh, you know, it was basically like, if you don't like it, leave. And at that point, you know, I just made the decision to leave. I was young. I wanted to go back to Dallas. I wanted to like go back, finish school and like really go into entertainment radio. That was my goal. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had always been told you have a great voice. I was hired because I had a great voice. I was like, okay, I want to work in radio. And um, news, I think my voice is better suited for news. Um, but then when I got into entertainment and voiceovers, everybody, the, the industry had shifted to like wanting the guy next door. Like mm. they kind of want that squirrely, like, Hey man, like, you know, and yeah. so they refer to my voice as an announcer voice. Huh. And like that golden era was before my time. You know, huh. if I was born 20 years earlier, I'd have a successful lucrative career voice <laughs> acting. Yeah. Um, but and now we lead into AI and things like that. So maybe having a unique voice will help in the world of AI. Yeah. But for the most part, it, it pushed me out of that industry. Like, it, it, that's how I got into entertainment radio was locally on 101X. Um, so I was on there for about a year and a half, two years with Jason and Deb. Oh, really? And so I, I my character name was Tranny, uh, back when you could say that. Oh. <laughs> And uh, I can say that I identify as part of the trans community. We don't find it offensive, yeah. um, but people on the internet do. And um, so, you know, that, that. So that that means you came to Austin at a certain point. Right. I actually came to Austin in, in 2001. Okay. So I moved here in 2001 for school. Okay. I was maybe I was almost 2002. Yeah. Okay. So I've been here for. Over 20 wow, years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all the changes yeah. and everything. Yeah. So I, I, I guess it, it is, like you were saying, it's really hard to break into entertainment radio. Yeah. And then that industry was kind of dying, too, to satellite radio. I mean, as at the advent of XM and everything else that was coming along, I was already being told that that's not a, a viable long-term career. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Um, I did a commercial, ironically, for Taylor Morrison Homes <laughs> with Deb from 101X uh, at Bobby Bone Studio. So it was a, a random chance encounter yeah. um, that she was friends with the account executive for Taylor Morrison. They had hired me as the voiceover. And then I did it opposite of her. And then she's like, oh, I had no idea who she was. You know, I didn't <laughs> listen to morning radio and so then she had brought me in to do the morning show mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of like their gay correspondent and so i would go out like i remember the year drag race came on the air i was on the radio i went out to interview rupaul and i went out and did like uh, i think rupaul was do- it was the first season of drag race was doing the kind of the u.s tour pr tour and so it was kiss and fly just opened and uh, so I did that on 101X. Like, it was around that era of, like, oh. RuPaul's first season. I was on the radio as tranny, and I was <laughs> interviewing people. And um, so that was kind of my start, really, into, like, what do I want? What is it I really want to do? Yeah. You know, and that's, like, to get out of the radio and be on stage and be the entertainer. And so, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. You've had these magical moments. I mean, meeting Walter Cronkite, meeting RuPaul. Yeah. <laughs> 
landing in Austin and then soon after having a recurring character on a morning show that's, you know, it's in some way, shape, or form still exists today. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, I know that it's been tough to deal with that industry, but can you, do you, do you, like having that little those little collection of of magical moments yeah yeah i mean it's they were there was definitely the world was trying to pull me where i wanted to be um but i was very pragmatic in the sense of like i needed to make money to pay for my wine (laughs) and so that starving artist life was never my immediate channel Mm -hmm. like i did that for a little while and i was like this isn't for me like i waited tables went to school I was a starving artist for many, many years, um, but I chose a life of stability. So even with those amazing moments where the world was flashing to me, like, hey, like this is where you belong and this is what you want, it was still like that. Yeah, lots of people don't make it was sure. what I was told. Oh, I remember you heard that in your ears as a young child. So yeah. now it's just translated to the world telling you that. Yeah, so a lot, a lot of that... I had to really, I had to realize that those were unique and neat moments mm-hmm. and that uh, I can sit here and talk about them now. At the time, of course, it was like, this is cool, but moving on to the next sure. and on to the next and you're young. and yeah. um, But that era, that's gone. <laughs> There's no journalism like that back then, yeah. you know, and yeah. most people don't even know who Cronkite is. Younger people will have to Google that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there really is. It's like, it's like a... Crying Seacrest, but for serious things. Yeah. Like, everywhere. Uh, you know, just... And now that everybody has a, you know, I mean, ironically, we're on a podcast, but... <laughs> yeah. You know, you have these, you can go live, and people build gigantic followings, and we have no idea who they are. Um, I find that really unique, coming from a world that, you know, we were always trying to achieve that, like gatekeeper status we wanted to be mm-hmm. acknowledged by the networks and the everybody and um andy warhol was right you know everybody has their 15 minutes yeah. and and ironically now it's like the tv industry watches the internet to find their talent and who's yeah. rising up they want to grab them um and that's even shifted more so since covid now where tv's kind of i mean tiktok has taken on a, a it is the gold standard for entertainment now. Yeah. And a lot of people that are not on it are going to be left behind. And um, younger people always want to, they don't want to be associated with Instagram and Facebook and things like that. So it's smart to be the older person on TikTok. Like that's where I've, mm. you know, I mean, my videos are getting 45,000 views on there. Good God. And that's something where it's like, oh my God, actually feel like that's working Uh and then that turned into this tv show that's going to be airing this winter uh, on a big major network that i'm on and so i'm actually achieving those like now i get to tell my story so a lot of my story will be told on um i can't say the network but Uh it's a major real estate network (laughs) Uh that everybody watches Um, so they did a really in-depth piece on my life and my life story Nice, they, nice. They came to Cap City and they, you know, we filmed, um, uh-huh. we filmed my life story. So it'll be kind of neat. It'll yeah. be like a big debut splash, hopefully this uh, oh December. Gosh. Oh, that's exciting. So a lot of that I can't 
talk sure. about. I think I screwed up and talked about it on that podcast. They said it wasn't going to be out till later, and then they dumped the podcast oh. the next week. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I... so that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So you said that you had a lot of people telling you to try stand up. Yeah. To do stand up. So when did you finally? Like heed the the message and get on a stage for stand up. I, I had to look back at my old Facebook and search it for stand up to see when that was, and that was a dig pub in Cedar Park. So there was an open mic there back in the day, um, and that was actually the first time I ever got on stage. And then around that same time was Cap City, so it was like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, yeah. two thousand nine. I think was the year twenty. So I was really active in the stand up scene from. 09 when I left 101X to uh, 2013, 2012, 2013, when my real estate career kind of took over. I really didn't have time uh, at that point for comedy. I was chasing money. <laughs> um, what did you like about doing stand-up? Well, I mean, I, I was an immediate, like, natural. So, like, a lot of, I, would, I remember leaving Cap City and they were like, you're, how long have you been doing this? I'm like, I just started. And they're like, wow, <laughs> like, you're a natural and I just, I like that solo stage work. Yeah. I like making people laugh, of course. Um, but being able to tell a story and take people on a ride is just something that I've always enjoyed. Mm -hmm. So doing stand-up was definitely something I just, I think if had I gone to a comedy show when I was young, I would have loved it. And I would have been that Matt Reif starting at 18. <laughs> no questions what I want to do with my life. I'll be a stand-up for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, but never actually visually seeing it other than on TV. It was just one of those I didn't think about it. Yeah. It never crossed my mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, around the first time I got up, I knew that I was funny. Um, I knew I was funny when I was do introducing bands at South by, I always produced a show for the tag talent agency. They're no longer around. Um, but they represented my voice when I was doing voiceovers and they would do a South by concert and they asked me to produce their first one. So I did that for a couple of years and I got stage time and, uh, everybody was like, you're so funny. And then I would work with comics and I'd book comics. Like uh -huh. I remember booking Doug Millard. I did a show with him at Moon Tower and I was in drag and I was like, Hey, <laughs> I booked you in 09 at this show. And he was like, Holy shit. Like, I'm like, you won't recognize me because I'm not, you won't even, I don't, I think I had hair back then even. I wasn't bald. So I was not only like, wouldn't, I don't think he would have recognized me out uh -huh. of drag either. Yeah. Uh, but it was funny. We've talked since. So around, I mean, that was like a big heyday of like, oh nine, I would say oh nine to twenty twelve was yeah. like my, I I thought that would be the rest of my life, and then my, ironically, my talent agent's partner was a real estate broker, and I saw the fast and quick money he was making, and I thought he was kind of stupid, and I'm like, well, if he's making money, I'm smart, I know I can do that. Yeah. And uh, I did. I did a very, I've done it very well for over 10 years now. And then almost immediately after becoming what most would consider very successful, it was very miserable. Hmm. Um, I realized that it was like, I always thought money would make you happy. And I used to probably obnoxiously tell other comics, it was like, well, I'm going to go sell homes and make money to fund my career. Like, I, I want to have a cushion. I want to have, like, stability. I don't... Yeah want to live out of my car because <laughs> I, I knew I had, I knew I was funny. I knew I had the chops. I knew I had the stage presence. I knew every time I did a show and I wrote jokes with a punchline, people laughed mm -hmm. and it's like, well, you know, you know, you're a good comic. Right. Um, 
And I was like, I'm going to go make money and come back. And that's kind of what I did. Yeah. But two years in of like not doing stand up, I realized um, that I was missing something. Like there was like my, I didn't have a creative outlet. I didn't have, I, I wasn't doing stage work anywhere. I knew I missed it. And so then I, it was around that time I launched Ridiculous. So that's kind of how it came about was like in the absence of any creativity. Uh, my grandmother was dying at the time from kidney disease and it was an homage to her. And so mm. that's, I, I called her and asked her, I said, grandma, you've always been this ridiculous person. She had five husbands. She was like pill popping, shot her mouth. She was like Karen Walker yeah. from Will and Grace, like mixed with Joan Rivers. <laughs> she was a blonde Karen Walker from Will and Grace. Oh my God. Love it. And, um, I had called her and I said, listen, you know, I want to make this an homage to you. Um, and I have two names I've come down to. It's Ruby Ridiculous or Ruby Diculous. And without missing a beat, she goes, Ruby Diculous, because I like the dick close to Ruby. <laughs> and, and so that's kind of how I got my drag name. Wow. I mean, that's awesome. And I had a marketing guru telling me to not go with Ruby Ridiculous and to do Ruby Ridiculous. And I was like, ah, I'm going to go with what she said. I think that was a good call. Yeah. That was a good call. So it, that's kind of like that birth of who Ruby, yeah. how Ruby became yeah. the stand-up comic. I was like, it was always there. And then we just threw a wig on it. And... So to remind me again, what's the timestamp on when Ruby was born? Uh, Austin Pride 2012 is when oh, Ruby was born. Okay. I had to look back at that the other day uh, when somebody asked. So it was 2012. Austin Pride reached out, asked me to produce their first drag brunch. Nobody was doing drag brunches, and they had reached out to me to do an event. And I said, look, other cities are doing drag brunches. Let's do a drag brunch. And so my friend owned uh, Old School Bar and Grill on 6th Street. Okay. It's no longer there anymore. And they had the upstairs venue uh, which that used to be Armadillo headquarters and it used to be the Cotton Exchange. Uh, I don't know what it's called now. I can't think of it. Uh, Poor House or something on 6th Street. Um, but it's the corner of Trinity and 6th. Okay. And so that upstairs venue like was known for um, big stars in Austin, music stars, Willie Nelson had performed on there. Um, oh, I can't think of the raspy voice died young uh, Janice Joplin oh. she performed there and so it was, it was really like historical venue so I had gone to them and said hey Austin Pride wants to do this brunch um, I'll be hosting I'm gonna bring in some other drag queens some comedians um, so I had just kind of had the idea at that point that I was going to come out in drag so I started the show out of drag was doing stand-up I did a stand-up set out of drag. I co-hosted with Leah Cheney, now Leighton Cheney. And um, and then I let two of the queens, Cynthia from RuPaul's Drag Race, years before she was ever on Drag Race, she was in the show. And I let them kind of take over the show. I went backstage and shaved my chest and my face and put makeup on and got in full drag in the middle of the show and then came out and finished the show and did a set in drag. Um and then close the show with drag. So that was kind of when that was when Ruby was born. Yeah. Yeah. How officially? Did, how, how did you feel like being able to 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 come out as as Ruby? You know, back then that it it sounds great, um, but if, when I actually like go back and inventory that day, you know, I was I always had stage fright. There was always so much like 
Huh. Um, my biggest problem was stage fright. I could get worked up for a show weeks before. And, um, excuse me, uh, that show, by the end of it, it was a, it was a brunch. So with a lot of entertainers, I think it lasted four hours. <laughs> and if you start taking Xanax and shots of whiskey <laughs> at 10 in the morning, there's a good chance that you're not going to finish that show sober. Uh-huh. And so I, one of the drag queens um, and my f- costume changing of getting out of my boy clothes had my keys, my phone, my wallet, and those shorts. And um, one of them picked it up, I guess. And so when, after the show was all like winding down, I was blackout wasted on pills and vodka and whiskey and everything. And I, I just, I lost it. I was like, I didn't have keys. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a wallet. I didn't have anything. And like, somebody told me I went on stage and like just uh, my petticoat, like tutu <laughs> with barely any clothes on and screaming at the audience, asking them who stole my fucking phone and my keys. Oh my gosh. So, you know, when I say that and then I go back and say, how did that end? It's like, it didn't end well. Yeah. Like it didn't end well. And that was always because of my nerves. Like I just, it was unrealistic um, nerves. Like I wanted to be on stage, but producing a show and organizing everything wasn't conducive to my addiction at the time. <laughs> so that I had to like write that down the other day and like remember that show because in my memory and when you look at pictures, it was this cool, fun event. It was sold out. Everybody was like raging about it. It was like a fun time. Yeah. And then I go back and it's like I just. I had to like scale the wall of my condo downtown to get in. And then I just hid from the world. I was so embarrassed after that. Like Austin Pride, had, like at the time it was a different producer, different people running it. They didn't like that I was vulgar. They didn't like, mm. um, you know, and in the end it's like not just being vulgar. It was embarrassing. It was an embarrassing show in the end. Um, everybody else, I mean, you know, they said it was fun and people still were like, I remember that. It was so much fun. And I'm like, but in my mind, it was the worst thing I could have ever done. Yeah. And then I kind of hid, like I uh, launched Ruby and then just retreated for a little while because yeah. it was, uh, it was hard. It was mostly stage fright and addiction, just immediately not, not believing in yourself enough. So going on stage now I get nervous like a normal person. Right before you go on, yeah. not weeks before, yeah. like unrealistic, like it's not even present. Stop thinking about it. Like, <laughs> so that, that was where I was launched and then kind of, uh, it started something. I was doing shows still. I went out and did stand up. I was doing a spider house, a lot of shows. There's mm-hmm. a little, um, I remember some of the, like, I looked back and it was like Ariel Isaac Norman, her and I did a show in 2017 together and she had never seen me out of drag until this year. And so I'm like 2017 till now. And like a lot of comics had never seen me out of drag because I would just come in do, do stand up drag, leave. I was never hanging out. I was never doing anything. Um, I can't believe I missed you because I started watching a lot of comedy in 2012. And I, I can't, I mean, as much as I was going to see shows, I I can't believe. Yeah. I, I missed you. 
I I definitely stuck to producing my own stuff around then. Like I would, I still tell kids today, and I see everybody doing that. I said, if no one's willing to put you on stage, build your own. Yeah. And so a lot of my shows were self-produced, you know, and and that was. Um, but I was always a part of the scene. I just always felt rejected. Mm. And then like a lot of uh, the, sh- I would do a lot of open mics at austin java so my place was over there downtown yeah. it was right next to where austin java used to be yep. so it was easier for me just to go downstairs and like get on stage and open mics were never my forte like i did a lot of them yeah and i i don't think it's a good gauge of like is your material funny you know like no because everybody's in their heads about their sets and their friends are there to see their sets and everyone's like just starting out and it's like in this town specifically it's not a, a it's not a good place. Like doing a drop-in somewhere is a great place to try out material, <laughs> but doing um, open mics, I immediately learned that it was not like I know this is funny and it's not working here. And I was like, I'm not. This is a waste of my time. So I would just go and roast the other comics, <laughs> and I found that was fun. Like, so the first time I had like I, I bombed at an open mic, I was like, well, it's not the it's not the material. I know that for a fact. And so then I just turned around and go back and roast the other comics and their sets. And that went over really well uh-huh. in those rooms. And so I kind of use open mics for like roasting. Uh, it's kind of fun good. to go in and do crowd work. And so if I, if you catch me at an open mic, I'm not doing a set. I'm t- <laughs> <laughs> usually roasting the hell out of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So you uh, were already producing your own shows before the pandemic hit yeah and then how did i feel like i need to know like at what point you realized the the drugs and the drinking were hindering your progress um the pandemic you know i've always known i was probably never fun to i mean i would i would say in my 20s i was fun to drink with but by my 30s like you know, severe back injury or my back herniation. So it got dark. Like it yeah. got dark in my thirties. And um, I always, I mean, even at nineteen, I knew I needed to quit drinking. I remember turning twenty-one. The gift to myself was going to be to stop drinking because I knew I had a problem. And then I wow. just kept drinking and just kept drinking. And I was a very high functional alcoholic, but alcoholism got and I, I i say that like even in some of my closest friends that i drank with back then like drinking buddies that i'm no longer friends with i was always like let's quit <laughs> like i'd pour the first glass and i'm like we should probably talk about stopping drinking <laughs> like nobody wants to sit around drinking with someone that the entire time yeah. they're like how do we strategize to stop drinking and i look back oh on like gosh. how silly that was yeah. now that i'm like why didn't you just enjoy the moment um therein lies like that problem as I was always living in the future of the past yeah yeah so pandemic came I had planned a bunch of shows uh, I was doing Corpus Bride I had all these shows in 2019 um planned for 2020 and um the same problem stage fright I'd get nervous and worry about stuff I wasn't preparing for shows like I should because I was always drunk mm. and um I remember specifically there was a show at Skull Mechanics I was doing the week. I had just flown to Puerto Vallarta to talk to them about doing a show there at the Palm. 
and I was flying back. My friends got engaged while we were down there. And I remember somebody telling me, like, oh, you should probably wear a mask. And I was like, that's weird. Hmm. Flew to Puerto Vallarta, had an amazing time, partied, had fun, talked to the palm, talked to my friend that did a show down there, and um, flew home with this, like, I want to move to Puerto Vallarta. I want to do shows at the Palm. I want to live there. I want to like, I'm, I'm going to come back. 2020 is my comeback. And so I had all these other shows planned and I didn't prepare for them. And I, I remember when the, we landed from Puerto Vallarta the next week, they shut the country down. Oof. And then that week I had my first show out of 21 shows that I was going to go to New York. I was traveling everywhere. And when the pandemic started, I was actually relieved. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God they're canceling these gigs. (laughs) Because I wasn't prepared for them. I was still in deep in addiction. And um, it was really strange that everybody was losing everything. And then I had this weird, like, I was going to sell my house. I was going to cash out, buy an RV, travel the globe really fulfill my dreams before I turned 40. It was like, you've wasted your 20s, you've wasted your 30s, you've never, like, gone all in with your career. And so I I specifically remember that was what the goal of 2020 was, was to leave this, like, leave my business behind. I was going to just leave Austin and get out. And... um, and then when the pandemic canceled those shows, I was excited. But at the same time, it was like, I don't, with all that uncertainty, I was like, we're going to turn 40 sitting at home alone. Yeah. So if you wait till 39 to do all of your bucket items before 40, a pandemic can come. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can't do it. And you're going to sit and turn 40 sitting in your house alone. And that, that around, so July of 2020, I mean, I was... It was either I was going to die or I had to quit. Wow. Like it got that dark in the pandemic and my life was fine. I had money. I had great careers. I it was not suffering. I was suffering because it was like you put it all off till now and now you can't do it. And then everybody else, like you have this like survivor guilt. All of my friends who were full-time entertainers were all out of work. It was all very uncertain. It was dangerous and scary. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You just almost like gave all of this up at the worst time in a hundred years. And so then I, I was very fearful. Um, but it was July 13th. I woke up that morning and I, I remember I posted something online that kind of alluded to killing myself. Um, I was like a cry for help. Mm. You know, I was very alone. And the irony is that when the pandemic came, it looked a lot like my life, like isolating with an isolated alcoholic and, and quarantine are the same thing. Like, you don't realize how isolated you are until everyone else is doing it. And then it doesn't seem fun. Mm-hmm. It was like, you're not living your life. Everyone, now you now you want to go live your life and you're forced. Everybody's forced to live like you were for the last decade. Um, so that led me to like July 13th. I woke up that day and was just like, this is enough. That's mm-hmm. enough. There's no more. Like, And it was what I call a voice of God. Like that day before when I was really contemplating just swallowing a bottle of pills and ending it. It was, um, I realized how fortunate and grateful I should be for my life and how I had made it. And the one question that came to me was, if you can't manage a successful life and you're this sad, what are you going to do when your parents die? Hmm. And that washed over me like, like, 
you will die. Like you will not be able to, you, you can't handle that. You're not fit mentally enough to handle that. And that was like that day after every week of years and years of trying to quit. Um, I just, I just quit. I quit. And I didn't have withdrawals like I did the other thousand times I tried to quit. I didn't have anything. I just quit. And then at 90 days, I had already been to 90 days before, so that wasn't exciting. It was like getting over that hump. And then it just, life just kept getting better and better and better and better and better. And like, like then by the time the pandemic wound down, you know, I was... Um, in a much different place mentally. So it was kind of like wild to get out and get started. Um, as everybody's kind of like restarting, I just like hit the ground running and I haven't stopped since. (laughs) So from that moment on, it's just been one opportunity and one opportunity after another, after another, after another. And wow, here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing yeah. All of that. That was. Uh, I, th- I think my. T- I think I, my eyes started to get some allergies. <laughs> <laughs> um, Triumphant story. I'm proud of myself for doing that. Yeah, you know. for sure. And there, there's nothing like coming to that realization on your own terms. Versus, I mean, you've you've had a, a rough life as as far as as addiction, just from the the bits you've you've shared with me. But you know, not the you you didn't have to go through the the intervention intervention style thing. Oh, nobody was uh, going to come do an intervention on yeah. me. <laughs> there was no, but there's no family or anybody that was going to show up for yeah. that. So it was like it was either me or it nobody. Was, yeah. And I think when most people come to that conclusion, mm-hmm. you have to realize you can either take that as like a sign, or you can just. I don't know. That was the crossroad, though, was realizing nobody's coming. Yeah. Nobody's coming to rescue you. There is no intervention. Nobody frankly cared it felt like you know you have to care for yourself like if you want other people to care for you you have to care for yourself so i don't blame anybody it was like uh the product of my own decisions how do you think that you changed on stage once you you decided that you were going to to oh much more confident i mean i i think i had delusions of grandeur when i was drunk so i could always like if I found that sweet spot, it was a short set. I was great, but not sustainable. If I had, if I ever had to do two shows, there was no second show. Mm. <laughs> Be asleep. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it's it's weirdly like I'm a typical comic in the sense that like, oh, I could get off stage and have like roaring laughter, and everybody takes pictures after the show, and they buy my merch, and it's an amazing show. And, I still think it's terrible, even though everybody laughed and they're like in tears and they're like, we love you. It's still, I still feel like it's a, that crept back in after, (laughs) after I got sober, it was like, those just, those feelings don't go away. Um, even, even if you believe in yourself, there's still that, um, that morbid doubt of comedy. That's like, they're all, I'll tell you this, this is an interesting story. I was in New York doing a show uh, at the Ice Palace on Fire Island. And this was in 2021. It was my f- like first year in sober. And um, 
I wanted to go to New York and redo everything I had done before because I had had a bad show up there. Mm. Really bad. <laughs> like, completely forgot my set as I walked on. One of the drag queens, um, I won't mention her name, but from Drag Race, had come in and, like, put all of her makeup down and covered up my set list. And it was a long set, so I was just going to have it put on the speaker out there. Just I still have memory issues to where I just kind of, like, want to glance at it if I lose track, you sure. know. New York, it was really nervous, and people in the audience were like Wanda Sykes, and you know, Ooh. there's people that have homes on Cherry Grove that are really famous, like that are at your shows or at the show that you're at. And you're like, oh my god, like the nerves are way more palpable in the audience as professional entertainers. And uh, so I wanted to go back and do that once I got sober. I needed to like write that ship, you know. And I went back. Um, and I was going to do a show at Stonewall. And I was going to do a show, the show uh, in, in Fire Island. And it was, I don't even know what I was going to say. No. <laughs> I, 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 oh, I, so I went up there to write the ship and do that show. And being sober, I realized like um, how different my life was then compared to when I had been up there before. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know. I don't even know what I was saying with that other than... There was a point when I was on the road that I said, "What are you? Why are you going everywhere? You're going to Port I went back to Puerto Vallarta that March and did a show at the Palm. I went back to Fire Island. I wanted to recreate all my alcoholic ventures because yeah. I traveled. I just kind of withdrew from Austin. I felt like that wasn't like all of my friends that made it had to do it in New York or LA. And so my thing was like, I can't leave and move. So I just always traveled and did shows with friends that had, you know, shows at other venues. Yeah, and um. I was laying in my Airbnb in Greenwich Village in New York and I was going to do my show at Stonewall and I was sick and I tested negative for COVID. And so then basically I was just stuck there. I had to cancel my Boston show in Provincetown. And um, I was like, why are you not doing shows in Austin? Mm. Like, why are you like in the pandemic, Austin became this comedy Mecca. You have feet in the ground there you have yeah why are you why are you traveling you're spending thousands and thousands of dollars that now you have to cancel because you got covid on the road yeah. and then i canceled my show at stonewall in the middle of pride which was like mm. such a big checklist for me and three days laying in bed in that that airbnb and then canceling the boston trip it was like what am i doing mm. and i came back to austin and, and then i did funniest person um and then it just was like one thing after another. It was like no time had passed and it was better than it had ever been. Like, I think there was a little bit of delusion of like how much I worked in the comedy scene before in Austin. And, um, and then after that, it's like Cap City reached out and offered the show. And then we're celebrating our one year on October 22nd. Um, and then we've got shows popping up all over, yeah. TV show appearances and more TV show appearances coming. So it's like that moment in New York was very pivotal. It was like, yeah. what am I doing? Why are you not doing this in Austin? And then came home and just got to work. Huh. And it's been, I guess, three years. To, well, that was probably a year in because I went, yeah, the first year I just wanted to travel. Mm -hmm. and I got that out of my system quickly. Yeah, yeah I mean, everywhere I turn, I, I see your your wrenches. I yeah. know Cap City, you started doing those weekly. 
Yeah, we're doing Cap City and then South Austin Comedy Club. Um, and then I was launching that show at Creek in the Cave, but it was too much, too much, too fast. Mm -hmm. And then, so we're doing uh, Stand Up is a Drag at Velveeta Room mm -hmm. on um, October the 19th at 8 p.m. Yeah. So, you know, that... I came home with a purpose from that trip, and I, I've lived it out, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's do this uh, open-ended question. It's not sure. We're more than halfway <laughs> into the, the episode, but uh, point to a card. Okay, so the, I'm going to read that one to you, but you're going to read that one to me okay. first. And I finish it. So the last time I... Well, no, I'll finish okay. it. Okay, so I'm asking you. Yeah. The last time I pretended I wasn't crying. Oh. I, I actually have a very... Uh, I don't care emotion about crying. Mm -hmm. If I cry, it's because I'm feeling emotion. Why would I stop that? Yeah. I went to a theater show a few months ago. One of my friend's son was the lead. And it was just, oh, I could start myself feeling welling up thinking about the shows. It's one of these really, like, uh, emotional, like, you're, it's this kid growing up. And he's, you know, best friends with his dad, who's this fantastical storyteller. And, you know, by the end, it's the story of the son not feeling connected to his father. Because he doesn't know if any of these stories were true. And then the father develops cancer and they, you know walk through the end of, of uh, the father's life I the my only thing that I was nervous about was getting into the ugly crying stage where I was going to be hup hupping mm -hmm. but I was like I'm in a dark theater I'm feeling these emotions what's to be embarrassed or yeah. you know ashamed of so if if something makes me cry you're gonna see it I just don't care that's I, good so I, I definitely encourage people that not to feel it any shame at all about crying because if you're feeling emotional but you you need your body to feel those emotional emotions yeah except in business uh, outside of business crying uh, completely okay uh, okay sure yeah i, I, I mean don't cry like a baby because you know you didn't get the right promotion of the race that's not that's yeah. not professional yeah <laughs> But, you know, if something has happened to a colleague and it is emotional for you, then, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. So, <laughs> even that, I'll find exceptions for you. <laughs> All right. Are you ready for yours? Ruby? I'm ready. Okay. Okay. The last time I made a fool of myself. <laughs> I think we've covered that. <laughs> My 20s and 30s. <laughs> and teens. Teens. Yeah. yeah I, you know, I start one of my sets out with that is like, um, you know, I have a long history in Austin, criminal history. <laughs> and I did. The first time I ever visited Austin, I got arrested for oh stealing gosh. a golf cart. Um, it was 1999. <laughs> I came for Splash. And uh, I should probably stop telling that joke because I just had it erased from my record or sealed, oh. expunged. I uh -huh. paid a lot of money to have that part of my life erased. <laughs> And then I still talk about it. Yeah. So it would be like, what's the point of erasing it? Yeah. Um, but on stage, nothing's real, right? Yeah, yeah. The jokes are all made up. Strangely, <laughs> though, like, yeah, they're all based in... I, I joke about, you know, being a whore, and I joke about my criminal history, and, and, and all that's from my teens and 20s. But then people, like, 
I can tell some people do leave shows thinking that. Like, they do mm. think that you're, like, this drug addict felon oh. person. And I'm like, I mean, there was some psychopathy at 18, you know, 17, 18. <laughs> but there was a lot going on. Um, but, yeah, I, I think people do leave some shows. Like, <laughs> and you're a drag queen talking about being a whore and a thief. Like, um <laughs> They did happen, and I did smoke meth out of a gerbil feeder when they were still glass. Okay. It just was when I was, <laughs> I had a boyfriend and a lizard, and he had a pregnant girlfriend, so if that doesn't mm. lead on, that decisions were not being made <laughs> above bar back then. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're making wiser decisions yeah. these days. Yeah, I got all that. I was very cognizant of bad decisions at 20. Like, yeah. everything else was kind of, like, circumstantial, but, like, I remember the night I turned 20 even. I said, you or can't be 40 and look back on this and not say you're a teenager anymore. Huh. Like I was very aware of the night of like 19 when I left teenage years. Yeah. I said, you you can't make bad decisions that you can't answer for in the future because you're not going to be a teenager anymore. So my life changed by 20. The embarrassing other moments were just alcohol-fueled mm. shows that stressed <laughs> me out. <laughs> Well, having been been a longtime resident of Austin, we're going to get to my favorite segment. Uh, yeah. And that is, I don't actually have never formally called it a segment, but you have been in Austin a really long time and been part of Austin comedy a really yeah. long time. What do you think about today's comedy scene? You know, I, I joke about everything that I always arrive, like when I get my come up and sell anything in life, it's always as it's dying. Like, <laughs> The radio thing in life, you know, like had I had this voice 30 years prior, I would have been a billionaire in voice acting. <laughs> and then like comedy, I have my comeuppance and like now drag queens are all doing stand up. Like every drag race girl has a stand up special on Amazon or Netflix. Huh. Um, and what do I think about Austin? It's like, I'm glad it's happening the way it is. I'm glad there's like so many people here to do comedy. It It does start to feel like the only value some of the outsiders see is Rogan's club. Mm. And I'm like, we've always had a very rich stand-up comedy scene here. And it's like, we've always had the live music. It's Austin. It's like what built Austin. It's what made Austin great. And then there is like that big eclipsing, um, cult of personality that's happening. Yeah. That, that the only way to make it is this one way, ironically. So I, I'm, happy where Austin's comedy scene is. I'm happy. I'm so grateful to have the opportunities I have. Um, but sometimes when you talk to people, it's like, well, I mean, have you been to Rogan's club? I mean, have you done Rogan's shows? Have you done kill Tony? And I'm like, well, no. And they're like, Oh, and they're flippant about anything that yeah. you've ever done. Yeah. And I was like, that's just a cult of personality that's happening everywhere. That, that mob mentality I, I talk about often. So I think Austin's amazing and it's great. And I'm curious to see like, how it washes out yeah. um but I mean, we have so many big big like tim Dillon has a house here right like rogan you've got tom segura all these big people here driving it um so i think it's neat i i have not i haven't been to mothership yet i'm not you know disparaging them in any way i just um I was, as an old Austinite, I'm excited to be at Cap City. I'm excited to be at Velveeta. I'm excited to have yeah. shows there. Um, that's like winning an Emmy in Austin, you know, yeah. or something. It's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, it is a big deal. And um, 
And then when you get some feedback from people like that, where it's like, well, well, you haven't done Kill Tony. And it's like, I don't care. (laughs) I've existed way before that. I'm not going to rely on my own success just based on somebody picking my name out of a bucket. Yeah. I'm going to go make my thing, which I have been doing now. Yeah. So I think there's that like bifurcation of comedy in Austin now, where it's like, there's two universes. Yeah. Um, And then there's like that spitefulness of people that weren't picked right like that weren't a part of the scene i and i say this and i hope i don't get in trouble for it but (laughs) i remember being that young drunk on the peripheral doing my own shows producing my own shows and like and i remember like the comics i was with at that time we always felt other than like Mm -hmm. there weren't gay comics back then i was like one of the first out gay comics in the austin scene i mean uh the other one was like daniel webb who moved on and then him and i were friends like there wasn't, like, now every gay person is a comic. Every comic's doing gay material. And it, so it's interesting to, like, um, kind of feel like I'm in this queer comedy scene and not be a comic. Like, mm-hmm. uh, most people just book me or want to book me and, like, do drag. And I'm like, but I, I don't really lip sync and do, sh- I've always done stand-up. I've never been a lip sync drag queen. Yeah. I do lip sync at my show. I do a number, <laughs> a big number in the middle of my show at Cap City. But, you know, it... it it feels like like just being called a queer comic when like I just want to be a comic and I'm, I consider myself just a comic. I don't care if I'm in drag or what my subject material is. Like it varies. It's just that feels very othered. And I guess I, what I was trying to say is like I remember like the politics of the comedy scene back then. Um, you felt like oh, if you weren't picked or you weren't selected then you weren't good enough. Yeah. And then now it's like, there's just two different universes for that. Um, And like, once you're a part of it, you feel very like, Oh, I remember what it was like to be on the outside feeling like I wasn't, nobody was paying attention to you. And then when everyone's paying attention to you, you feel even more scrutiny. So I don't know. It's interesting. It's, it's a great time to be in comedy. It's a great time to be in Austin. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's just interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to start winding down, but there's a question that I've been asking my guests. Yeah. And it is, uh, I want you to think about your current favorite joke that you tell or that you have. Oh, God. And just, and just think about what it okay. is. And then whatever your, your organizational system, give me the title that you put in your, in your uh, notebook or oh, whatever. Yeah. Only the title. Just the title. Yeah. Yeah. Penetration. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, because uh, I, I hadn't been asking for that, and I do not want you to tell me the joke. That's not what this is about. But I thought, you know, if somebody's listening to this, I want them to go to a show and watch you and then get excited if they, they hear this, oh, this yeah. joke. Okay. But what I want you to tell me is why, why do you love this joke so much? What is about the joke makes you so happy? Oh, well, it's fun. I mean, it kind of tells a little bit about the history we covered at the same time. Mm. It's one of the reactions, like, I feel like laughs are, laughs are easy. Um, this is one of those, like, cringe moments mm. in the show where people should be expecting something crazy out of my mouth. And I'm, but it's, it's obviously further than most people. Like, it's on the edge. Uh-huh. And I, I like that guttural, like, oh. <laughs> I there's something about that I like. Yeah. Um, 
that. So that I, I picked that joke because there's other comics who are like, that's a great joke. And I, so yeah, that that response is different than laughs. Like laughs, I feel like, okay, you can it's like there's a rhythm and a, a cadence uh -huh. to getting laughs and, and the way you say things can get laughs. Um, that one, it's like the material is like, oh. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's cool. That, that kind of makes me think of, uh, I don't I don't know why this image just flashed in my head. You you mentioned her name earlier as some of the albums that you'd watch, but Joan Rivers, like oh, she yeah. would always, you know, she'd just hit you punch, 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 and then she would say something that got that cringe, and she's like, oh, now that's the limit, or yeah, you know, whatever yeah, her reaction yeah. was. It's like what? Yeah, <laughs> if I didn't, so we didn't have like Joan albums, but like for me, Joan stand up and Joan Rivers personality is like I said very much like my grandmother yeah. and so that that, that set up and punch is my style uh -huh. that's like I get compared to her a lot and mm. I think it's because like my two biggest influences were George Carlin and Joan Rivers yeah so, yeah. yeah that's a uh, good influences to choose from for sure yeah <laughs> Yeah. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you want people to know about you, Ruby? No, I think we plugged all the shows. Uh, we talked about all of my drugs and alcohol addictions and <laughs> criminal history. Good thing you own, you run your own business. So. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness. Um, we won't mention that one. But I am Austin's drag queen realtor. And uh, yeah, just stay tuned for that. You can catch me on TikTok and Instagram, everything at Rubidiculous. Yeah. Well, we're not quite done yet. You oh. have one closing question, and okay. then you'll, you get to do your plugs again. Oh, good. So you're you're a smart marketer. You're gonna get <laughs> to do them twice. <laughs> All right, tell me one word to describe your future. Mm. You're asking my my Vegas nerve. It's uncertainty. <laughs> Uncertain. Yeah. For sure, we're not promised anything. Yeah. So. That's how, yeah. I mean, that. I hate that part of it. That's mm -hmm. the worst part. Yeah. Uncertainty we saw in the pandemic drives us crazy. Um, but part of my, it, it's so cliche now that I saw that. Have you seen that TikTok trend um, where they ask men about the Roman Empire? No. So like, I didn't realize this. Like somebody got me into the Roman Empire a long time ago and I started really diving. I love history. Uh -huh. So like studying the Roman Empire, every stage of it, and the Greek Empire, and, like, how those empires collapsed and where we are. Oh, my God. You could have hours conversation with my yeah. son. He loves that yeah. old history. And it's weird because, like, there's, like, some kind of, like, sleeper agent move <laughs> happening because on TikTok this trend blew up recently where women are all asking their husbands how many times, how often do they think about the Roman Empire? And every single man says, like, at least once a day or oh once God. a week. And every single man worldwide's like, all the time. I thought about it earlier today. And I think about it all the time because the straight guy got me into it. And then I just love history. And so I, then I like got into stoicism and, like, um, you know, there's, like, a lot of, people studying stoicism now and ancient philosophy, which is really interesting. And then realizing that every man's studying the Roman empire daily and thinking about it and how it impacts our lives and where we are on that huh. curve of the empire. Apparently everyone's thinking about it. That's crazy. And so, yeah, I've, I've been a big history huh. buff on that. And so when they talk about that now, I'm like uncertain, uncertain what the future looks like, yeah. you know, yeah. but hopefully successful. Yeah. 
But it's got to happen quick, because, I mean, I'm 43 soon. Stop. <laughs> Stop. And things, you know, we grew up in that era of, you, you wouldn't make it after 24 MTV, right? Yeah, like, yeah. your casting yeah. cutoff was 24. And as right. a kid, I remember being like, oh, that's it. So yeah. anything's, anything's better at this age. Yeah. You make your own you way, it. you're wise. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that is a wrap on Comedy Way and Presents. Ruby Diculous, thank you, Grandma, for yeah. encouraging that choice. Okay. <laughs> Ruby, tell us where we can find you on social media and your upcoming projects. So I am on all social media. You can go to rubydiculous.com or rubydick.com for those that can't spell it. Sometimes <laughs> I can't even spell it, so I don't blame you. Um all my social links are there. It's all at Rubidiculous on Instagram, on TikTok. I'm going to be releasing some new um, real estate advice reels. I do lives on TikToks um, talking about real estate to people. Um, so TikTok and Instagram, lives and reels. And then, um, yeah, you can catch me at Cap City Comedy Club on the 22nd of this month. It'll be our one-year anniversary. Then October 19th will be at... Um, Velveeta Room for stand-up as a drag. And then on the 29th at South Austin Comedy Club. And, and November dates, because this is not going out. Oh, yeah. This is going, so November <laughs> November the 17th. And check my website at Rubidiculous. And, and December 17th yeah. at Cap City. But then yeah. you've got more other yeah. venues that you're going to be. Yeah, there'll be a lot of shows coming up here real soon. And then around December is when we hope to have my big TV debut. Nice. Exciting. Yeah. Exciting. All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed learning about how Ruby got to be the comedic genius that you heard today just as much as I have. This has been Comedy Wham presents Ruby Diculous. I'm Valerie, and that's been funny. Thank Thanks. you, Ruby. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs>